Welcome to episode 315 of the Winning Six podcast. I'm your host, Adam McGee, and joining me as usual is my good friend, Jordan Tresky. Jordan, hello, how are you? Hello, I'm great. <laughs> great, I'm glad someone's great. Um, superstar of the, the global airwaves since we last recorded. Oh my god. <laughs> For those who are unaware, Jordan Chesky made an appearance on the BBC World Service last week, where there was multiple, you know, name checks for winning six, which was quite surreal and interesting. Well, how was that, Jordan? How did you find that whole experience? Strange and, uh, yeah, strange. <laughs> it was a very well, strange experience, but. I thought you did very well in what was a strange experience because of all of the all of the events that really led to anyone looking for for Jordan Tresky to appear on the BBC World <laughs> Service, you know. You know things are things are in a strange place when that happens, but yeah, it's been a an eventful couple of weeks would uh, certainly be underselling it. We did, last time we were on, we did say we would record every two games in the series. That obviously didn't happen. Uh, those of you who follow the site account or follow me on social media will know I had a, a death in the family, so I was kind of out of it for a while. And as we kind of got towards the end of it, I started to get into things that made sense to wait until the end of the series. Of course, a lot happened then, even off the court, right up to that mark. So as a result, we're going to play some catch-up here in today's episode. We are going to talk about the book's walkout, the book's strike, the book's protest uh, that took place before their originally scheduled Game 5. We're going to talk about the Orlando Magic series, the f- book's first-round win, in a kind of quick-fire snapshot form, which thankfully doesn't have us like having to come in after game one and break it down and say how we feel. And then we are going to look ahead, because later today, Monday, as we record, the Bucks will get their conference semifinal series underway against the Miami Heat, and we'll have plenty of thoughts on all of that too. Jordan, are you ready for all of that? I am ready. Uh, esteemed and well-trained radio professional such as yourself. <laughs> I am ready. Okay, let's let's start with the let's start with the protests because it's the biggest storyline of this book season and that goes regardless of where this ends up. I mean, the books can win a championship 
and it's not going to make the kind of noise or reverberate around the world. And I mean, it should be clear on that as if it isn't clear enough already. Again, Jordan was on the BBC World Service last week. <laughs> but what the books did and then what the rest of the NBA teams did in following suit last Wednesday, those actions did reverberate around the world and did make everyone sit up and take notice in a way that I, I really don't know of anything the team can or will do on the court can match up to. So on that front, I think this is the only place for us to start. And with that, I mean, where do we start? Like, where do we go with this? Where do we go? Do we go with, okay, yet another instance of police brutality that brought this about, that forced the need for this again, that broke down the book's players and, you know, made an already kind of weary group collectively of NBA players who, before they even headed to Walt Disney World to resume the season, these kind of concerns were at the forefront of their mind. It was, okay, well, if we're not going to be part of the movement, if we're not going to be part of the protests that took place in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, well, then, you know, why, why are we doing this? What are we doing? How are we kind of impacting change in the ways that we want to as a group? And that was a concern. So then from the books in particular, when you get Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, on their doorstep, things hit home a little differently. I mean, I guess we go to the the incident itself, first and foremost. The problem here, the biggest problem of all, and the saddest part of this, and really what then leads to all the actions is, when you heard of the shooting of Jacob Blake, I'm guessing you weren't surprised, right? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, well, no. Like, that's that's what this boils down to. And I think... Like, this is not a new problem. And this is a really kind of... It's another branch of many other problems that have plagued a whole host of countries around the world for quite some time, but I think have been most keenly felt in the United States. And... I'm always kind of left in a left in a spot of just kind of bewilderment and disbelief when it happens in part because it's not surprising and no one is surprised by it. I mean, the onion have those famous headlines that they tend to run oh, out where it's like yeah. a mass shooter, you know, and it's it's that element of it. I don't know can you or obviously as someone who lives in the US as someone who uh, lives in Wisconsin then in the light of these events, you can speak to it more directly than I can. But what is the feeling when something like last week happens? And that is that a black man was shot seven times in the back by, by a police officer. Well, it's just like, you. it's kind of the, I don't know. I mean, what is normal these days anyway, but like you right. just get in, it's the same rhythm of like, you see the video and then, you know, you think he's dead. And then you see like all these updates and all this stuff, like what's going on. I didn't even know. I, I think I was just writing until like then. So I had Twitter open. And then of course, like, uh, you know, uh, I see there was like, it originally wasn't like, like splayed out of like what actually happened. It's like, oh, there's like this police presence kind of thing. And then you find out like what happens. And then you're just kind of like, oh, that's, you know, 
it's not the fact that it it occurred. It's you know, it's in Wisconsin. It's all this stuff, and then it just kind of, I don't know. If you just at this point, everybody's become desensitized to it, and that's why Bucks players, specifically George Hill and stuff like that, they've tried to make this a theme. Don't lose sight of what's a, the bigger picture of mm-hmm. everything, and it certainly boiled. I mean. We were have been talking like in between you and I, like you could just tell like there's some players that are kind of enjoying or maybe we're enjoying the bubble initially, and then you kind of just realize like, oh yeah, like this is such a repetitious thing. They and you, it's like life itself in a pandemic that you're just so like apart from everything going on, and that you know you obviously understand why things came mounted to the to the point where you know the Bucks staged their walkout and why they're so frustrated with just this happening, not within their own community, obviously too. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's quite a few things that go into that, that to me just seem really simple and easy to understand and should kind of just be universally, you know, accepted as a case of right and wrong. And yet we all know, I mean, let's not, bury our heads in the sand. I'm not even going to pretend that we're probably not going to get some angry tweets for even simply talking about this. Uh, I've certainly seen the comments. I got the replies on articles we've written on the subject in the last few days. But, you know, the fact is there's something kind of deeply twisted with a large portion of society. If A, there is a group of people who think it's okay to do this, and that group of people can include the cops themselves who were responsible in this case, who were responsible in the George Floyd case, but also those who condone it or look to explain it away. And obviously, I mean, the the kind of most significant wave of this has come in the form of whataboutism, basically, which is yeah. what about Jacob Blake's existing record? What about you know, the personal history of a person X or person Y. We saw this at the same time uh, of George Floyd's killing, and it has recurred again, where you get this kind of, this attempt to basically character assassinate someone and explain it away as if it makes it okay, where, I mean, it always just boils down to, is that what the punishment is supposed to be for a crime anyone's committed? No matter what someone's done, is that... Is that the punishment that, you know, on a way to, to your car to check on your three sons, you get shot seven times in the back? The answer is no. You know, you arrest someone, they get their day in court. That's kind of pretty key to the functioning ideas of a democracy. And the only the only kind of situation where anything other than that is even deemed to be, you know, acceptable is the wrong word, but is, you know, is someone an active threat at that time? And the thing that we've seen from George Floyd and now from Jacob Blake and from countless others, basically in the the rise of the the viral police brutality age, what a strange thing to say, but I mean, this is what happened. The fact that people do document this, the fact that we mm-hmm. do get to see it, is the tread is never really there. The threat is never there. People may want to add a threat level after the fact. They may want to 
really kind of work into explaining why someone might act that way around a certain person, but the dread was not there. I mean, one of the most striking things to me, uh, I'll to, for my context, I was kind of completely out of it. I it was Sunday evening, right when the the shooting happened. Uh, yes. I had a fu- funeral to go to on Monday morning, so I was catching up with it pretty much after the fact. And really, I think the only time I started to get any sense of it and try to catch up and read up was when the book started to make kind of their own statements in uh, media availability. Coach Bud had his statement. George Hill had his, I don't know what we came to this damn place, Chris Middleton. You know, when when that kind of, that wave of the story arose from a book's perspective, that kind of brought me back into it at a time when I probably wasn't as tuned in. But what struck me most when I saw the video was that it was in broad daylight, you know. Uh, it's it's bizarre. It's just completely unimaginable, really, except for the fact that it happens all the time. It happens, you know, a lot throughout yeah. the year. Much more than even we're, I think, mostly aware of. Much more than, you know, the names that we're talking about. And I think that is the point where the sheer exhaustion of it, and that applies for any any black person or person of color living in America. It's you know these may be the top line stories, but it's also just the the living with the fear of it every day. It's the trying to wrestle with the you know even if it doesn't end like this in the worst kind of scenario, it's dealing with just how that kind of prejudice and suspicion impacts your life. And that goes from stories that, I mean, lots of NBA players have shared. We obviously know kind of pretty intimately for a couple of years, one case of this involving an NBA player with Mm -hmm. Sterling Brown's unlawful arrest. But then you also get like, uh, it was Mo Harkless, right? Who shared a story about like being stopped, um, just outside of Portland, I think it was during his time as a trailblazer, and you know, things aren't good until they realize who he was, and then things are fine. It's it's just the overall element of that. I think one of the interesting things in terms of how it all played out from an NBA perspective after that fact is I can't imagine that it didn't hit home a whole lot more because the players are in the bubble right now, and because they are actually in a like they're sequestered off in a safe environment. Like that is the whole purpose here is that it's safe. It's safe in terms of trying to prevent COVID from getting in, but it's also, they're in a situation where uh, they are the main attraction. They are the main event. People know who they are to go to where they need to go. They have access. And there are probably just elements of trust elements of concern that they have to worry about in their everyday life that are gone at this moment. And then an incident like this brings back up, okay, well, this is reality. This is reality outside of this completely surreal trying to finish a basketball season in Disneyland in a, you know, environment that is maybe safe so far, knock on wood, safe from the global pandemic we're all we're all working through. And I guess with that, that brings us to the book's element of this. And for the book's element of this, reports started to break 
what would we say, 15 minutes, 10 minutes before broadcast started on Wednesday evening for what was supposed to be Game 5, mm-hmm. that the books weren't on the floor. The Magic were out there. Well, for the first, the first thing was George... Well, George Hill was was uh, a healthy scratch, basically. You're right. He was yeah. inactive. Frank Mason was going to be active. And sure, that was a red flag right away in terms of what might be happening because, I mean, you mentioned conversations we've had privately. You and I have talked quite a lot about George Hill. And I mean, I've even alluded to, I alluded to a player a few weeks ago that I just, I felt like just from his social media alone, the vibes aren't necessary that this is someone who was thrilled to be in the bubble. It seemed like it was someone who was weighing on quite heavily, and I didn't name them at the time, but the person was George Hill. And that has been clear kind of throughout that he just hasn't, kind of hasn't been all there with it. Uh, clearly, you know, being away from his family has taken its toll. But then you also have just being pulled away from the community and away from the wider concerns going on throughout america at this time and hill is one of the players who was incredibly active before this in terms of response to COVID 19 in terms of the fight for social justice and interracial inequality he just so happened that he wasn't doing a lot of that in milwaukee so i'm not sure if all of books fans are kind of quite on top of the ins and outs but George Hill in Texas was doing quite a lot before going Indiana, in. Indiana too, where he Indiana his, too, where he opened his his new school. school and he was protesting right. too. So he is someone who clearly, if we're talking about you know going into it, and we can't know everyone's minds, we can't know the ins and outs, but I think his words and his actions long before this had suggested that. You know, where a lot of players might have said, yeah, okay, if this is what everyone's doing, we're going and doing it. It's back to business. We're going to try and win a championship. George Hill was clearly wrestling with that decision a little bit more. And, of course, before news came out that Hill was going to sit out Game 5, we heard that the Celtics and the Raptors were talking about uh, the terminology at that point was still boycotting uh, their own Game 1. And I think when it unfolds from there, we're going to get into what are really the kind of NBA narrative elements around it and how they pertain to the books, which we'll just call them as interesting instead of like referring to them as insane, which would be another term we could use. I think what this boils down to is we've got a lot more detail in recent days. So as has been reported across various sources, George Hill had gone to coach Bud earlier in the day. He said, he was going to sit out, then trying not to make it known to his teammates, so not to influence their decisions, he kept it pretty close to his chest. At some point later in the day, Sterling Brown found out, and understandably, particularly given his own personal history, Sterling Brown said, I am also going to sit out and I'm going to stick with him. And from there, it seems like Darvin Ham was the person who spoke uh, pretty strongly to the players. Giannis was next to say, well, I'm sticking with my teammates. I'm not playing. And look, I, I think it's safe to assume from that point, everyone's like, okay, well, you know, this is our move. You know, we're staying together as a group. This is our united front. And I mean, I only read this morning that the, the way the word actually got to the magic, I don't know. Did you come across this yet? 
I didn't. So how the magic got word was fifteen minutes Einstein? before tip. I might have seen it. It is. It's from Mark Sansing. So so Giannis Giannis sent a text to Michael Carter Williams, and Giannis sent a text to his former Bucks teammate explaining they weren't going to play, and they weren't coming out of the locker room. And from there, it was put to the magic by Michael Carter Williams, uh, Jeff Weltman, Magic team president, then spoke to the players soon after that, and they made the decision that they wouldn't be accepting any kind of forfeit from the books. They didn't want to win a playoff game that way, and they would be joining them in solidarity of the protest. And I think the the quote that was in that Mark Stein piece for the New York Times where Michael Carter Williams reveals that, to me is like <laughs> just one of the simplest the simplest descriptions of what happened and why it happened and why the NBA fallout from it has just been completely bizarre. And that is like a Carter Williams saw it and his Orlando teammates seemingly saw it as, okay, we're surprised, but this happened in Wisconsin. This happened in their backyard. They want to take a stand. They want to take the lead. It is about them. It's about them standing up for Wisconsin and applying pressure and kind of changing things in their own home state. That was the core sentiment that Michael Carter Williams seemed to share, and I would guess the Magic seemed to share. And so the books didn't play the game. Um, about three hours after they entered their, their locker room, they eventually left it and released a team statement, which was co-read by George Hill and Sterling Brown. And then they went back to their hotel. I mean, we don't need to break down the beat by beat from here because I'm assuming everyone knows it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. about the the meeting with, you know, Kyle Corver supposedly saying, look, we know it was kind of spur of the moment. Apologies if anyone feels like they've been left out and Sterling Brown jumping in and saying, no, you know, we acted and that's okay. And Jalen Brown was a player from another team set to support them. And that meeting ultimately ended up with LeBron James and the Lakers and the Clippers then both walking out of the meeting and saying that they weren't going to continue playing. The next morning, all of that changed. The season carries on. Eventually, there's early signs of concrete action, at least pledges from ownership um, that went a long way towards you know convincing the players to return. And I guess we'll see where things go from there, is how I'd put it. I mean, it's going to be a pretty precarious piece, I would describe this as, for however long um, they're all required to remain and finish out the season in Orlando. I think that's the way I would put it. But from a book's perspective, the books made clear calls to action. They have seen some progress and also not seen some progress on some of the things they have called for, but they have certainly drawn attention to them and they've certainly kind of made the requisite amount of noise to go about forcing real change. And I don't think it will finish from there. I mean, we know that the books have been taking a strong stand on really all social justice matters for quite a while. They've been taking the lead. They've been increasingly active in their community in terms of looking to serve their community. And on that front, it wasn't shocking that when it came down to it, the books were brave enough to act. And that is, 
I mean, the key word here, because this is a truly historic moment. This is something that is going to go down in sporting history. It's going to be mentioned in history books beyond that. And we look at a year as eventful and as crazy as 2020, uh, what the books did, and then I guess the chain of events that were set off after it and the dialogue it sparked and that will hopefully continue and lead to real action, you know, that is also going to be part of the story. So, Jordan, what has your reaction been in the time since to, I guess, the writing and rewriting of what played out, how the players got back to playing, and really where the books were at, what the books partnered was because from where i'm sitting and i'll take a more impartial view just to set this up for you and for you to give your opinion before weighing in with mine after but at at the moment in the time itself when the books refused to take to the court for game five there was and not universal we understand that we've been over that at the beginning of the podcast but as close to universal acclaim as you can achieve in 2020 for the books, for taking a stand, for taking action, and for making their mark with a protest that was powerful, that was strong, and that could lead to further action. That really kind of, it went beyond simply kneeling. It went beyond slogans on t-shirts or on the court. The kind of things that, at this point, we talk about, you know, things that the wider public have become desensitized to, they certainly fit that bill because Mm. they've become very much commonplace. Someone needed to, no pun intended, book that trend and come up with something that was much more striking and really much more consequential too. Um, Something that had higher stakes to begin with. So when all of that happened, you've got positive you know, well done to the books, the books is well done to the magic, then very quickly, you know, no one wants to play after that, so team by team, game by game, and then league-wide, okay, it all comes to a halt. And then, by later that night, the PR machines around the league go into action, and we get the dissenting views, or we get some barbs, I would say, at the books, which I just found to be completely baffling. But I I think we do have to talk about in terms of we're talking about the actions the books took because they're part of the wider story and they're part of what people will be talking about for years and years, whether people, I think, understand the events as they played out or as they were framed in the aftermath. So, Jordan, your reaction to what has followed the books protest? Well, to to say first, people are going to be talking about what the books did more than... Like in the years to come, people are going to be talking about what the Bucks did more than you know what fo- has followed in four or five days since all this stuff, or the kind of the narrative building. Uh, well, they'll be talking about what was done by NBA players. Sure, yes, but will they be talking about what the Bucks did? I mean, I think that is the question, and that's you know how exactly history remembers that and how it's framed. Is, is a question of will it be that the books opted not to play and the league came to a stop or NBA players decided on this day not to play, which is true. I mean, it happened across multiple games, but the books happened to be first. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is the process that I think we've seen at work is the understanding of, okay, well, you know, we're either all a part of this or some of us aren't a part of it and let's see what way this can be written. Yeah, I... Um, 
I don't know. I just, I've, it's just a part of the, I mean, it's a critical moment because obviously, you know, if it's technically a strike and stuff like that, and there was real fans on the line, I mean, the fact that, you know, the, there's real implications for what it would have meant for the NBA Mm-hmm. and all this stuff and that's you can't lose sight of that i understand but it's still like uh yeah there's just been some um <laughs> i don't know i just it's like it just seems it it it's losing sight of what it or some there's of- no need to talk in vagaries i know you're a man for dodging questions i know exactly. you're now professional at this you know um but <laughs> Um, I just think, I don't know, it's losing sight of just the fact that, like, what the whole point of this and stuff, and then it's like, well, LeBron saved the league, he he walked out of the meeting, Patrick Beverly's yelling in Michelle Roberts' face, you know, like, all this stuff, and it's like, really, are we, why do we have, like, it's just like this, like, the same, I don't know. It just feels like that we play into it's it's taking it's mid- taking a much bigger moment than action and it's putting it through the kind of usual bullshit NBA prism. Yeah. Of like, you know, let's make this about one guy or the other guy and it's very strange. I mean, you mentioned LeBron, that's what I was trying to get you just to say it. I'm not gonna have any reservation saying it. Because I mean, look, a lot of the coverage, um, the coverage that's like, you know, the real story of what happened that night of the real story behind the scenes, you know, on the phone, as if there's a, you know, there was a phone call, there was LeBron James on one side, red phone, there was Barack Obama on the other side. Yeah. And, you know, there was another phone, there was another phone on that line, another person in that room, and I won't mention their name or what publication they worked for, but they were listening to make sure that we all knew the truth about how LeBron saved the season, <laughs> saved the NBA, and, you know, gave us world peace. But on on the serious side of that, I mean, it, it didn't take long in the aftermath for reports to come out of, you know, teams who were put out or surprised by what the books did and disappointed that there wasn't communication. And I, I found Jalen Brown's response and that re- the reporting on that to be particularly kind of revealing and important because Jalen Brown, well-documented, an incredibly smart guy, someone who has been vocal and active himself in the kind of push for and fight for greater equality throughout society and ends to police brutality. And he was clearly someone who, you know, was capable, as I'm sure a lot of people in the room were, a lot of players, a lot of coaches, a lot of league officials, capable of seeing the moment for what it was, um, realizing it was bigger than any one of them, any one individual or any one team, and going, I understand why this happened, because, you know, a day from now, I may well be in a part of some of a team that did the same. You know, I may well be in a part of a group of players that did the same. So there's no explanations needed here. And then you have another group of people like, why couldn't we all have talked about this and come out and put out a united front? And one of those things is about impact and the other is about optics. Yeah. And I think the optic side of this is really damaging. And I, I personally, this is only my personal opinion, I, I don't think it's done LeBron James a whole lot of good the way the reporting has come out. I mean, it doesn't even necessarily reflect on him because we haven't 
it's not like we've had him in the media saying certain things that really kind of paint him in a in a bad light because of you know how he's responded it's more the reporting um you know anonymous sources and not really direct quotes attributed to lebron james certainly nothing that i can come out and speak behind but i i do think for a lot of people there'll be a significant part of his legacy uh that will be just just slightly tainted slightly tainted by it because it's been very strange to go through a couple of basic elements of this why did the books do what they did well clearly emotions were running high george hill in the moment decided he wasn't going to play sterling brown decided he wasn't going to play and so the books are suddenly i mean certainly from when they would have started talking about it but they're like an hour 30 minutes before tip off in a playoff game they're in their locker room at that point are they supposed to you know take up the phones and call off the other teams and say you know have we got permission to do this together no the more important thing was talking through it themselves if they decided they want to do it if they decide they felt what was that was what was right for them it was about making sure they were all on the same page they knew what they wanted to say when they had to speak about this and they were you know confident in their own convictions so that this was a decision that they weren't going to regret hours later, days later, months later, depending on how this could have played out. Because just because, you know, in the time since the season has resumed, they're back playing, as you alluded to, it doesn't mean that that was, you know, a guarantee when the books made that decision. This could have and almost did go a whole lot of ways. So making this call is a really, really drastic and bold move. Yeah. The other part of it is, this happened in Wisconsin. I don't know how any player, any team, any fan, I don't know how any person, um, regardless of what their thoughts even are on what the books did, on the cause in question, could look at this and not kind of detach themselves from it and say, I understand why they decided they wanted to be the team to take the lead on this. Because what would it have looked like if the books had gone out and played on Wednesday night, and then on Thursday, the Celtics and Raptors decided they didn't want to play because they were standing up and making a point because a few days earlier, this man had been shot by police in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So I I don't think there's any reason to be like, why did they do it? Why did they do it then? The other part of this, and I think it really speaks to what made the books protest, what made the books walk out, an event a momentous, truly kind of historic occasion, a moment in NBA history that will be talked about forever, a moment in history more broadly than the NBA, is the fact that they didn't call up every other player and they didn't talk with the league and we didn't get this sanitized version of this, which is the NBA putting out a statement saying all of our teams and players and we're all united and we've decided to pause for a day in light of what's happened. Because that is really just an extension of what's happened. That is an extension of, um, no matter what you think of them, the messages, the social justice messages on players' jerseys, you know, that would have been an extension of, oh, sure, you can put messages on your jerseys, but we will choose what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Wesley Matthews in... I think it might have been after the series was finished and his media availability, but he made the point of you can't script change. 
And yep, he was 100% right. Like, that is that is why what the books did was so impactful because it didn't come from a corporate statement. It came from them standing up. It came from them ultimately stepping out in front of the media outside their locker room, having directly spoken to public officials in Wisconsin and being able to make a, you know, a sharp and clear-minded statement on why they did what they did and what they wanted to see as next steps. And I mean, that last part of it also feeds into the kind of more unbelievable part of the revisionism that came very quickly after it from other corners and other teams in, uh, let's say, the other conference on the opposite coast, where it becomes, you know, well, you can't just do this without having a plan. What comes next? What are we looking for? The books had a plan from the beginning because they spoke to the people that mattered most in this context, in this situation, and they made a direct call from that moment. And there was no reason coming out of that why every other team that's still in the bubble couldn't have had a similar call to their state officials because there isn't a single state where there's you know, not a need for this, not a need for... Um, police force and what's permitted to be reviewed where there aren't existing cases that need greater scrutiny what the books did was set out what next steps were act on them immediately and really laid a template that could have been there for other teams to directly follow beyond even what came next in terms of trying to get owners to pledge money trying to get owners to put more pressure on getting the nba to agree to uh play advertisements that will encourage people to vote or that will promote social justice messages during games or you know kind of the wider league campaign which is now to get not just players and staff registered to vote but to get people registered to vote beyond that like the books kind of set the table on all of that i i'm undoubtedly biased but I do think there's a lot of ways where this could have been mishandled and they really could have kind of fudged this up and we could have come out of it saying, you know, their heart is in the right place. They did something really noble, really impressive, but they could have done it a lot better. And I can honestly handle my heart, sit here at this point and say, that's not how I feel. I think the books did the right thing. They did something they could be proud of, but I think they also did it in an incredibly thoughtful and thorough way, which in the aftermath, I don't think has been given the kind of credit it deserves. It's being laid out from other parties who came to it after the fact, because, you know, this particular instance wasn't theirs to lead on. It was the team that were closest to it. And they're saying, well, what are we going to do? What comes next? Well, the books had already shown what comes next at that point. And hopefully they will continue on that front and so will other teams from around the NBA. But I, I think that is that is not what this is about. And George Hill has been clear about it. I think the books as a whole, they didn't do this to be the first line in the history book when this chapter comes up. You know, that's not what they did it for. But I do think they should be because of how they did it. And I think a lot of players and teams around the NBA can still learn from exactly what the books did, how they did it, and why they did it that way. And I was, you know, maybe you just shouldn't be caught off guard or baffled by anything anymore because I'm baffled by the response every time there is a police shooting. I'm baffled by the response every time there is a mass shooting. I'm baffled by the response when it comes to something as simple as, you know, NBA team takes a stand that the vast majority of people, the 
the vast majority of people will say was a positive, Mm -hmm. was the right thing to do, was a good thing to do. That also the rest of the players around the league would say, we believe and we support in this stance. And yet they still find ways to, you know, pick it apart or, oh, well, if we'd done it this way or that way. It's at this point, I mean, maybe I just shouldn't be, maybe I shouldn't be surprised by anything anymore, Jordan. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think you make a point. I know Marcus Johnson talked about like all this with, I wrote a piece a couple of days ago and it was, it was something from Dunk Bit, like, like the Yahoo Sports thing. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about like if it was like, the the video with his, uh, chat he did with his son Chris, yeah, with, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, he was just talking about like, you know, we the days before we talked, we heard about like the Celtics Raptors, you know, talking about like boycotting and stuff like that. And I mean, granted, it was not being played till Thursday and stuff like. And before, you know, it, there was still a day left until like, oh, what are they gonna do? But, like, easily, the players' union could have easily gone over to them and say, like, that you don't need to do that. We can do this in a more con- constructive way or, or in a way that doesn't, you know, I guess, ha- see what happens with, you know, or what happened with the Bucks when they had their walkout kind of thing. But I, I think the whole point of this and what's getting lost, when whether it's intended or not, like, when we're doing the narrative building of, like, oh, he saved the NBA. He saved the bubble. LeBron, all like you know, all this stuff. This kind of like superhero narrative kind of thing. It's like it. What's getting lost is like just the organic nature of just how things progressed to the point that mm-hmm. the Bucks they didn't anticipate. It wasn't their their plan of staging a strike for however it wasn't long it, was. it wasn't staged at all yeah, like that's exactly. you said organic i mean another word we could use there is authentic i think that's the yes. key with what the books did yeah i i i i don't know i again i think this stuff just really quickly goes under the water and stuff like that and just what will prevail will be just the impact of what the Bucks did in the NBA at large and all that stuff. And just kind of, I mean, it just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be this ever evolving story because, you know, we're not even a week into it and it just, it's going to change by the day and maybe something good comes of it and something doesn't, but it just adds another layer and just how this season is. I mean, it's already been a great season, but just, you kind of, you understand the character of the team itself and that kind of, mm-hmm makes it a little more, you know, even more humanizing for all fans and everything like that. Yeah, I've, I've never, never been more proud of that group of players. Yep. Uh, they're obviously with the, the lens that you and I in particular, I mean, the lens that we talk about them and write about them and follow their every move and have been for years. At this point, I think it's safe to say we're both pretty invested whether we set out to be at this level or not, I mean, it's just, it's a very natural thing. And there have been lots of great moments, but that, that to me was the greatest because, and I, again, look, there are people who are going to feel differently. Know that I disagree with you. I disagree with you very strongly, just as you'll probably let me know that you disagree with me. But what I, I don't see how anyone who supports his team as players, who supports his team as individuals, you know, 
they did what they felt was right. And that's that's what it comes down to. And to actually do that is deserving of major credit. And it's really the grounds which any decision should be made. You know, if we were living in a much better world than the one we're currently in, uh, people would make decisions based on what they felt was best for themselves and others. And they would follow their own convictions rather than, you know, thinking of the gamesmanship of it all. And Mm -hmm. on that front, I think the book stuck to who we all believe they are. Um, They actually stayed true to the kind of, you know, the empty platitudes that at times you would hear. That's not to say that they, they weren't always true. But when you talk about, you know, books, DNA and books, culture, and you hear this talk about the kind of people we want in an organization. Well, that was a real moment where we got a chance to see, well, you know, who are these guys as people? Who are they really when it boils down to it? And sure, it may have been George Hill that took the lead, but it it says a lot for who the books are and just the relationships they have built that as a team, they all followed suit. As a team, they put up a united front. I think that is very fitting for this group. And it made their impact, the impact of what they did, all all the greater. Hopefully, it's something that continues to help in actually, you know, bringing about real change. And then there's also, if people want this flip to a basketball conversation, which we are going to be doing in just a moment, but it also just shows the bond there. And we're coming to, we're now into the real business end of the playoffs, and these guys are going to battle together on the court. And when we talk even about the narratives and the way things have broken up, like the dynamics in the bubble at this point are fascinating and may only get all the more interesting as we go on over the next few weeks with the kind of personalities and the big high profile players that are left and the, the rivalries, maybe budding, maybe under the surface, maybe some already existing between these teams. And with all of that, you look at the books and you say, okay, there's lots of stuff on the court. They need to iron out off the court. They're, you know, as strong and as United as you could ask for. That's, that's not going to be the failing of this team is that they're going to like be brought down by infighting. Yeah. And, I think that is, on all levels, it's worth noting. Agreed. Will we talk about the Orlando Magic? Let's do it. (laughs) So, the Orlando Magic. The books advanced to the second round by beating the Magic in five games. That started with a harsh overperformance in game one. As I mentioned briefly at the start, and I'll say again now, that is the kind of game where we were both very glad we hadn't said we were going to be doing podcasts after every game in the series because, oof, uh, not good, not good, really ugly, and based on how they had played in their regular season games in the bubble, the kind of, you know, panic-inducing performance that nobody needed. I wasn't shocked. In our last episode, I mean, we had both shared our feelings, and I was definitely, by a long way, uh, the much more nervous of the two of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, uncharacteristically bullish Jordan Tresky had the brooms out. And I was like, mm, <laughs> don't know about this. You had you uh, had the broom, like, behind you, and it was like a... Uh, the broom was the other corner of the room. I could yeah. go and get it if it, if the, if it was needed. I would happily go and get the broom. 
but I wasn't expecting the broom to be needed. Uh, I My prediction was five, but I think I would have said it at the time even. I predicted five. It wouldn't have surprised me if it had gone six. And I think as the series played out, we've seen that, you know, barring a couple of well-timed runs, it could easily have been six. But what I think we did see is, I think we saw the books get it together. After losing that game, they won four straight. It wasn't perfect. Uh, certainly the situation they were in and everything that followed then after their, their game five walkout wouldn't have necessarily have helped them in that regard to just get, you know, the perfect kind of focus and consistency on the game in place. But I do think without necessarily getting a complete game across any of the four, I think from game to game, we saw spells where they looked more and more like the books that we had come to know and love all throughout the season rather than the team that in the early games in Orlando have left us just a little bit shaken, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, I would say... Um, game four was a little kind of touch... Not touch and go, but like a little pulling teeth. like. But it was still... It was more of what we expected from the Bucks, or what I expected from the Bucks. <laughs> they kind of they certainly played their way into the series and, and got their wake up call after Game One, and I know there was some you know it wasn't pretty at times. I mean the fact that they Game Five it was like you know Magic come back from three point deficit, but like that's I don't expect like I didn't expect anything other anything else from them given their pedigree of just like, they're not going to give up all like the, the bucks certainly have let off the gas pedal when they've, you know, led as much as they have and stuff like that. But like, it's, it's start, it's getting there. It's if the, how they have talked about like their bubble preparations and everything like that and how ramping up, I mean, you certainly see where they're, you would be happy with it at, for them, the fact that they've obviously advanced to the next round, but there's certainly some things to clean up, especially with, you know, who's, who's next for them. Yeah. I mean, on that front, and I guess this is something that will feed into when we talk with the heat too. I, I think the magic was a really, a really good guess for the books in terms of that being their first round series. Agreed. Agreed. I think, I think it was a really stern test. Um, the Magic were far from full strength in terms of their players. I don't think that mattered as much, though, as the ways that the Magic ultimately did test them, because I think, look, if the Magic are full strength, the books are full strength, the books are still going to win. That was never the point of it. But you have a coach in Steve Clifford who, I mean, as years go on, I just continue to respect more and more. I think he's a really good, underrated coach who just gets the best out of what he had. He deserves real credit for what he did and making that any kind of a series. Yes. And that, that goes from winning game one, but it also applies to, you know, being down 20 plus points in the third quarter of game five and having his team come back to within three points. You know, uh, those players deserve credit for playing hard, for not giving up and for staying, you know, focused at the task at hand. And he deserves credit for getting them to that point. And I, I certainly think for coming out of the gate with a game plan that was to, it's not revolutionary. I mean, I think this is something we're going to learn as we go on too, or more accurately, we've already learned, which is we know what the challenge is for the books. I, I don't think we're going to get blindsided by too many 
opposing strategies we're going to see in these playoffs. No. And I think it's going to be about personnel, and each team is going to take their chance with it, and we'll see who can execute it best, and if someone can execute it well enough to beat the Bucks. I think it's that simple. I, I mean, I there will be tweaks, sure. There will be little details that every coach has, but whether it's Eric Spolster and his staff right now preparing for game one later today, or if it is some members of the Raptors or Celtic staff who have their eye on the book still and, okay, how will we approach this if it's a conference finals or Lakers, Clippers, whoever, if it's a finals, the, the core tenet of what they're going to do is, you know, it's the same. We know it. It's they're going to try to wall off the paint. They're going to try and limit Giannis's driving room and they're going to force the ball into the hands of other books where either you can easily pressure them into turnovers or they will have to do a lot of the open shooting and they will have to make those shots. It's not a complicated plan. Not necessarily always as easy to beat from a book's perspective as it is to just identify what it is, but we're going to see it over and over again. And even beyond this year, I mean, if Yana signs a Supermax and stays long term, we're going to see this year after year after year and teams will continue trying it and just look for new wrinkles and really new players to throw at him, new ways you can challenge him. And with that, I think the Magic came out in game one, and they did that, and it worked very well. And the books were dealing with, I guess, the general malaise they had been coming into the postseason, and just the not quite looking as sharp, and the Magic took full advantage. And what we saw from there was the books. It's not figure it out because again, like at this point, we all know and they know what's coming, but it's just settling down and it's okay. Let's not let this throw us off our kind of groove. We're going to stick with what we do and we know what we need to do in this situation. I think it's in that context where it's quite important because the books are going to see a lot of what the magic showed them again. Now when they play the heat, they're going to see it against a better coach team with better defenders, but they're going to get the same looks. And much was made of when the Raptors really committed to this, when they had to turn the conference finals around, when the books were halfway to the finals last year. Um, I think it was, was it a piece that Jerome uh, Weitzman wrote for Bleacher Report? And the, yes. It was it was Ben Sullivan who was quoted as yep. saying, you know, when, when the Raptors did that to Giannis, no one had ever done it quite like that. No one had committed quite that much up until that point. So for Giannis and for the rest of the team, it was a shock. I think the difference now is the Bucs have seen that quite a lot. And even on this playoff journey, you know, they're getting more and more reps out of each round. And in that first round series, they figured it out, got more comfortable, did more of what they needed to do in that situation as they went along. And it worked. They won the four games they needed to win. Not necessarily all very convincingly, but I do think certainly across the last three games, decent spells, like not not talking about kind of three minutes here, three minutes there, decent spells where they looked like themselves and they were really doing what you'd want them to do to not just beat the Magic, but to go on and beat the Heat and advance beyond that even in the playoffs. Agreed. I, I think to your point of the what the Magic... I mean, I, I'm not going to be a prisoner of the moment and kind of... Uh, you know, look at what happened yesterday. But, like, you see a, t- a series like Toronto and Brooklyn. I mean, we saw this last year with 
Bucks Pistons. It was not a really close series uh, at all. And in retrospect, people, I think, because of the of how the Bucks collapsed last year, people have kind of looked at that series as like, oh, look, they didn't, they weren't battle tested enough until the Celtics, and then, you know I mean, they were just kind of. I don't know. It's been used as this, like, well, they were tested in the first round, so you could see, like, the seeds of why things just epically collapsed for them last year. Whereas, whether that's right or wrong, whatever. But, like, you see, like, Brooklyn, or Toronto-Brooklyn this year in the bubble, and, you know, I mean, whatever we talked about Pistons last year, <laughs> Brooklyn was, you know, teams that were relying on, like, guys like Tyler Johnson, the guys that weren't even on the team when, you know, the season was up and running as normal. Um, and I just think for the Bucks, they get a, they basically get some magic team that yes, they weren't, they were less than full strength, all this stuff. They play them to their, like their max capabilities. They play about, they punch about their weight constantly. That's been St- Steve Clifford's MO, regardless if it's been Orlando or Charlotte, whatever. Do you and, think at some point, sorry to cut across, do you think he should get a good team? <laughs> do you think someone should actually I try and agree, see yeah. what he could do with any players? Like, because I, I just do think he's a really good coach. I mean, the closest thing he had, I mean, was the, Kemba and Al Jefferson. Kemba, Al Jefferson, Marvin Williams is a pretty good on that team too. But like Jeremy Lin was, you know, it was, it's still this like, this ragtag of. <laughs> <laughs> like misfits kind of and they're like oh they're I, I think they played the heat that year or something like that and it was just like oh yeah like i don't know um but i just think the template of what the the bucks went against in the magic and just how you know they're gonna prioritize it, it's the it's the honest rules we talked like how you were talking about that like they're going to limit what the bucks do in every facet of the way whether it's transition in the free throw line, I know that was a big thing for a lot of people, but like the Magic are a very disciplined team defensively. Whether we get into the nature of some calls or not, like it's still like there. And you're only going to see that when you go further in the playoffs, if the Bucks, you know, advance past this round and go to the finals, as we hope they do. Like, I just think we're 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 seeing a different way of how the bucks are going if if they get to where they want to go it's going to be a totally different route than they took last year i've been thinking a lot more about the pistons and Dwayne casey over the last couple of days or so and just in terms of that as a route to start this and it's something we're not really going to know i mean we'll have a better idea 24 hours from now because We'll see how they start out a second round, how well prepared they are for that. And maybe it is something at the end of the journey we'll we'll reflect on and say, yeah, okay, that was that was meaningful. You know, getting a, a team that not just tested the books, and let's also not oversell just what the test was, I mean, over the total kind of story in the arc of the series. I think there has been some of that. There's been from the little that I have seen, I think there has been some pretty dismissive stuff of the books as if the books are broken beyond repair because they lost the game one to the Magic. That's not quite true. But what I would say is the kind of looks the Magic gave them should be interesting and instructive to what they have to do next. Now, saying that, let's talk 
just a bit about some of the individuals. I think Giannis looks incredible. I don't know how long we need to talk about Giannis because I think he looks great. I think he looks about as good as he's ever really looked in the playoffs. Oh, without question. Very much unbothered even better, by even the approach. Than that the Pistons series last year. He was not as good. I know he had like a forty point game and stuff like that, but you could kind of see the seeds of like just how bothered by just how he looked in the conference finals because I I thought he didn't look Giannis like in that either. Mm-hmm. And I mean things like he had eight assists I know in game four. I think he had seven even in game one when they lost. Like he was doing the things that that kind of approach is going to force him into doing more of, and he was doing it well. And he was doing things that there's no reason he won't be able to repeat some of those against better players and against better defenders, which he will face going forward. So on the Giannis front, things are great. And that is certainly, you know, point number one on the list of what the books need to, to actually go and do this thing, to go win a championship or to get to the finals. They need Giannis to be great. And so far he's been great. And he looks like He's, you know, exactly where he needs to be in every department to continue being great beyond the first round. Yeah. Chris Middleton, Jordan. I mean, pretty much a roller coaster round. That was, uh, I can't get my words out. That was round and ride basically came out all at one there for you because that was the story of it. I mean, some of the real lowest lows we've seen from Middleton in the playoffs. Also, I think some quietly very good play as the series went on, which is important just in terms of building up confidence as much as anything. I mean, the only thing I care about for Middleton's first round is no matter what happens from here on out, he can't have another game where he attempts less than 10 field goals. Yes. You know, I, I don't care how many shots he misses. I just don't care. Just he's got to he's gotta play like the second guy. As long as he's shooting, teams will respect him because he has enough status as a player and they're aware of what he can do. They're aware that he can also get hot if you let him keep shooting. But what he can't do is become completely deferential and leave an even greater load on Giannis or leave it to like the real supporting players in the books roster where you're then almost clutching at straws when you're playing better teams. So for me, I mean... Sure, turnovers are a problem for him more early in the series than later. Um, it would be great if he shot quite a bit better, but he needs to shoot it. I mean, I think the Bucks could win a championship with Middleton shooting a not great percentage. Oh yeah, we don't have to. We don't have to come through these playoffs and be like, oh, he may not have got 50, 40, 90 in the regular season, but he did it in the playoffs, and that's why the Bucks won a championship. That's not required. He can he could shoot 44 and 32 and whatever, 80 if he wants. But he needs to shoot at volume. He needs to keep opposing teams honest. And he needs to do that for his star teammate and Giannis. And he needs to do that to also just make life easier for the other guys. Because if Middleton becomes a non-factor, well, then someone like uh, Wesley Matthews or Marvin Williams, you know, they're getting a whole lot more attention. And that's the last thing you need. You know, they're the guys that, you should have an advantage because you've got better than the average player to come in and take care of business on the wide open shots you're going to get by virtue of the stars you have out there. 
Middleton has got to play like the guy he has been for multiple years and like the all-star he has been for the past two seasons. That means you're taking the shots. Yep. I mean, there is plenty of encouragement in how he's rebounding and how he's creating for others, um, particularly as turnovers did come down later in the series. He made some really good, impactful passes, and that's a more reliable and ever-present element of his game now. But he just needs to shoot. I mean... Do you agree with that, or oh, is there anything absolutely. else that you think is key? Absolutely, you can't. You you don't. There is not the the other cover. You know, like a George Hill. Like how we were talking about George Hill last playoff run, or when Brogdon returned. Even though we kind of were like expectations shouldn't be too high because of you know how much time he missed. Like you have George Hill who has to you know possibly carry the slack when Eric Bledsoe's kind of not. You know, he's in and out of his own offense and their, their pathway is there that, you know, this is the big, it it all comes back to last summer. This, this played into the Bucks' big decision about what to do with Brogdon. The fact that they, you know, started a trade with him, but, you know, essentially let him walk. And if he's, if he's, he can be this hub of, of offense where, you know, like you said, like passing wise, I think he, Surely improved over the course of the series. I mean, Game Five, I thought he was tremendous in, in a lot of ways. He just and it it was pretty simple. It was like just throw the ball up high for seven footers, Giannis and Brooke <laughs> to <laughs> dunk at the rim. Um, he he just you can't pass up shots. You can't pass up shots at all, especially because that's just going to be anytime you have Giannis and Bledsoe on the floor. And I think Bud is actually kind of smartly veered away from that time, especially when it's not, you know, the starting lineup kind of the uh, to start like the halves and stuff like that, and maybe even close games, but the floor is, you know, can easily get shrunk. If, if uh, both of those are on the, on or if both Giannis and Bledsoe are on the floor. And then if you have Chris kind of, you know, not kind of picking one way or the other, whether I should shoot, whether I'm, you know, it's it's beyond 50, 40, 90, all these percentages at this point. You could ha- He can have a 25-point game and throw up 30 shots. If it's still a win, it's, it, it, it could be a messy process, but if you get the results, that's all that matters. Yeah, and I mean, they're, they're at a point and they're against the kind of teams where this doesn't have to be pretty anymore. It's like, it's not, it's not actually possible for it to be pretty in all these games against all these teams. You've just got to do what you've got to do to win. And I mean, that kind of conversation we're having with Chris, like that's that's the Bledsoe conversation is when Bledsoe starts turning down shots. And we've seen the damage that can do with a guy who was like the third option on the team. If it happens to Chris, it's game over. He's got to shoot. So it was good to see him get a couple of better games in to finish that series. But going into the second round now and with much tougher matchups, like the Jimmy Butler there in store for him, he's going to need to do more on both ends, but he just has got to keep shooting he's gotta gotta stick with that and i'd hope i mean Giannis himself revealed you know that he had urged chris to shoot those arms fell off what was that game four uh yeah Maybe yeah game three? that was that was his fourth quarter kind of rally right. like i hope that just sunk in like i don't you shouldn't need to you shouldn't need to say that again particularly given how positive the results were when he did it Yep. So I, I hope that's again that's something he carries with him throughout the remainder of these playoffs. Any other players you wanna you wanna mention? I mean, 
I think we could maybe mention Bledsoe when we come to the Heat series in a second because I think that's relevant. Uh, Marvin. Marvin's been tremendous. Marvin's been fantastic. He's... It's finally come together. I mean, we were kind of searching for, like, well, his defense has been good, and, you know, like, you know it, it had, you're not losing something when he's on the floor. But, you know, before that, it was just, like, it's all a matter of when whether his shots go in or not. And, uh, you know, going five, four for five in the closing game against the Magic, I'm sure he's, like, I mean, he shot pretty well in the bubble to begin with. But over the he's playoffs. like sixty five percent in the playoffs from trade. Yeah, I, I think that's. I think you'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's, and even like the lineup, like game five. I don't. I have no idea how many minutes the Bucks played this before. Uh, I mean, that's kind of part of Bud's kind of you know mo, I guess. But when he was playing for in in. Supplanting Giannis in the starting lineup, basically with you know the other four starters, I thought that was fantastic. I mean, I don't think there was anything lost with him, you know, taking place taking the place of Giannis in that where you have shot creators like Bledsoe and or I think Hill was on it maybe or maybe Bledsoe I can't remember, but Chris and all that stuff. Like I just thought, I, I he's we're starting to see why you know, the Bucks made a, a very clear decision on why they felt Marvel would help them in the playoffs or, you know, second half of the season, <laughs> turning into the playoffs and everything like that. The only other player I think I'll mention is Dante. Yeah. Uh, Dante is bad. <laughs> uh, I would like him not to be bad again, but right now Dante is bad. And Bud has already adjusted that because I, he was down to like 11 minutes, which we were talking about. Like, Corver, one of the first Corver's two guys off the bench basically played over him. Well, I mean, completely deservedly so. I mean, Corver shot the ball well since the restart, um, is very fresh. And quite frankly, Dante is not doing the things defensively that you no. expect as his baseline. Like, the intensity isn't quite there. And even when he kind of tries to ramp it up, it's not necessarily. It's not necessarily coming out in sound decisions otherwise. So I Dante is a problem at the moment. Uh, I would be like not at all surprised if he's a DMP coach's decision for game one against the Heat. And I mean, the one thing with that is Dante had a couple of good games. I think even when the Bucks didn't necessarily play well, I feel like I remember him having at least two good games against the Heat this year. And is the kind of player with, you know, Goran Dragic and Kendrick Nunn and Duncan Robinson that you could say oh yeah Tyler Hero too you go oh he's useful like I know what his role could be in this series maybe Bud sticks with it and it's like okay let's hope we get the wake up call but we're talking about just a shadow of the player he was earlier in the season like that's even almost overselling it it's pretty pretty alarming just how significant that drop off has been it's not just like someone out of form he's just like a completely different player yeah He's he has the sixty seven minutes in five games. That is like the fewest of the regular players that played against the Magic. So I'm not counting like Rolo or Urson. Um, yeah, like that's and it's for good reason. I mean, he has not looked good 
you mentioned Carver too. I mean, Pat has taken his minutes too. Pat has been good. Yes. Pat has been reliable. And it's that simple. It's like, can we rely on you? Do we know, you know, Dante still has a much higher ceiling, uh, but we're also seeing, I think his floor is a lot lower from game to game. And that's not really what you need in the playoffs. That certainly wasn't what we talked about, about Dante before the hiatus at all. No. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's a big, it's a unneeded, regression in a lot of ways it's a tough one because he would be really useful (laughs) and may still be over the course of this postseason run but it's like i just don't know how much scope the books are going to have with the way this is all lined up to just kind of get him run if he's playing like he's been playing i to be honest i don't think they have any you know the heat are a real team with some really good players yep and if dante plays like he has done uh, he'll get targeted, and he'll get targeted on the ball. That The moment that made me just, like, keel over was the, I think what I described to you as, like, the pass rush that the Magic broke out on Dante <laughs> when he get the ball in his hands. It's like, let's trap him in the corner, and it's a turnover. And it is a turnover. And that's where, you know, in the regular season and before the restart, you know, middle of the court, oh, Dante can handle the ball, and it, it got fools, Jordan. Fools like you and I excited about what he could be longer term. I think me particularly in terms of, you know, can he play a, a point guard as much as point guard is something that, you know, matters on this books team with how much the ball is in Giannis' hands and Chris's hands. But it, it was it was not good. And the fact that Orlando noticed that and targeted it and had some success with it and that instantly just you know, eight into Dante's minutes from there. That was one thing, but I guarantee that also didn't go unnoticed by the Heat coaching staff and scouts. Mm-hmm. Like, if Dante's in the game, he's going to see a lot of pressure with the ball in his hands. And ideally, with some of the lineups you would be putting him in, you'll want him to be able to have the ball in his hands. So there's going to be a lot asked of him, and he'll have to really up his game if he's going to play in this series. Uh, if he does and the Bucks can get him back to something like his best, it would be a major win and a big deal going forward, but it could be very, very risky. All right, the Miami Heat. You were very flippant about the Magic were just, you know, they were nothing to worry about in the first round. I'm I'm certainly not saying the Miami Heat are nothing to worry about, but I do think our positions will have flipped and that I think you're gonna be more concerned than I am with this particular series. Yes. <laughs> in fact I Which would... is kind of normal service resumed. The one normal thing in the world true. right now. I that think might that's be. true. I would go as far as to saying I think this might be the hardest series the Bucks have. To the finals. <laughs> So I guess there's only one other series. I don't, dis- I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. To me, and I think this is particularly, you know, relevant after we talked about, like, the Magic did test them in some interesting ways and some ways that kind of will foreshadow what they're going to see down the road. I think this is their toughest test. This is not the best team they're going to play, but it, it's the team that may just do the best job of putting the books in the most uncomfortable situations. Yeah. I actually I actually think I'd I think I might go the whole way on that. The Clippers are possibly the only team that I'd 
I'd consider in that picture. And I don't know if I'd even go all the way with, with putting them there. I think I, I'll i be upfront with right now. I don't think that he'd have the personnel to execute this to the point where they win the series. But they have depth of personnel yes. with sufficient skill sets to make this interesting. In a way that other teams won't. In a way that I honestly don't think the Boston Celtics could. Or in a way that even this year's Toronto Raptors may not be able to. You know, that if the books were playing well, I think they beat both of those teams. If the books play well and he play well, I think that might be closer. And it's not really about talent. And uh, my look, predictions will come at the end. I'm I'm not saying this is going to be a close series necessarily in terms of the overall series scoreline. But I think this could be very close regardless of how many games it runs and that the books could really be in it game to game to game, having to battle their way through, having to find ways to kind of grind out a win, whether they win in four games or seven games. You know, I, I don't think there'll be any easy kind of slim pickings there for them on this occasion. Yeah, I I, I agree on all your points. I think, I think from what I've gathered from the Twitter sphere and stuff like that and, and predictions and everything, we, we all know like how to, how the Bucks can be beaten on a given night or a ser- or what we saw last year with Toronto. You know I mean, it's like, it's this stretch of hot shooting. If your wall and your team defending is, uh, on Giannis is on point and you force other Bucks players to make plays. That's kind of, you know, the three, I guess, keys, I would say there's certainly others, but just to give, just to throw the, the Bucks off of playing their own way, their set way of under Bud, all this stuff for the last two years. And the Heat, I mean, I agree. I think top, I mean, we know that the Bucks had the best player in the series, but go through one through eight, one through nine, the Heat's rotation, I, I, are you, I would say it has a higher floor than the, the Bucks does. Um, really? Yeah. I, well, I just think, I mean, I don't, I think that also kind of goes into the Bledsoe factor of, is he Bledsoe in the playoffs or is he just... I think I think that framing, though, for you is like the typical you're about to play them in a playoff series fair where it's easy to say mm. that. Yes like, and no. I, I just think they... Like Goran Dragic, right? You're talking about Bledsoe. Goran Dragic is coming into this series in good form. Yes. He is also very capable of finding himself out of form pretty quickly and... The Heat would then be having the kind of conversation that we found ourselves having about Bledsoe plenty of times in the past. Like, they're not stylistically similar players, but I actually think they're very similar players in terms of they're like important. What their careers have been and why they couldn't have been more, and also why they weren't less. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I, I do think there's a part of. I'm not saying you're way off base or anything, but I do think. That's true if you're imagining the best version of the Heat. True. But just just like we know that the best version of the books may not show up here, I, I think it is also possible that the best version of the Heat 
won't show up either. And also that, I mean, Gore Dragic, as the example again, just because I've already brought him up, but he, after a successful first round series and their sweep over the Pacers, he is in for an entirely different challenge if he's getting the attention of the likes of Bledsoe or Wesley Matthews or George Hill or if Dante's in the game, like just different caliber defenders to what he saw before. And he may also end up challenged in terms of his own defense in ways that the the Pacers weren't necessarily able to. But I think certainly in terms of the defense he's going to face is a very different story in a lot of ways. I'm not, I don't think you're too far wrong. I think I'd agree that their floor may be higher than, I think their floor is definitely higher than the Celtics floor. I think the the Raptors are something very dependable that I'd struggle on that too, but I don't I don't think I'd say the Heat's floor is higher than the Bucks floor. Yeah, that that maybe may have been a little strong. But I think I think that's if if Dragic plays the way he has played in the bubble and certainly against like the Pacers, like then you're looking at like guys like Tyler here. It, it, I mean it's it's all the supporting guys that you're you know I looked, I had a piece on the season series and I'm just like, oh yeah, Jake Crowder had five threes in a, against the Bucks in that, you know, that terrible loss in March before everything shut down. But like, it's just that like, that was an outlier. Exactly. Game. The, the, like these outlier guys that like, we, I don't know. I don't know if it's like, I don't know. It kind of just like goes into like the struggle of the series to begin with. It's like, who, where are these outlier? How many or which team is going to get more outlier performances? You know what I mean? Well, see, I think the thing is with a playoff series is outliers generally become less relevant. Like, if this was a one-off game with the Miami Heat, I would be quaking in my boots because we've seen it. We've seen yeah. that the books are more than capable of losing to the Heat. Uh, over seven games, it's a very different story. A very different story. Someone like Tyler Hero, I think Tyler Hero could have one unbelievable game, two really good games. I'm <laughs> maybe I'm tempting fate. I I can already think of one listener who's going to be annoyed at me for saying this. I don't think he's going to have seven games like that. And I I think that applies for most of those Heat players. And against the Bucks over a longer spell, I don't know if it's enough. I don't know if you'll get four games out of only having one of those guys or even two of those guys a night go off. You're going to need a lot of it. Uh, they got their best. The Heat, the Heat could torch the Bucks on any given night. They could win by 40 points. They could show up the worst version of the Bucks. They could have the best version themselves. I just don't have any belief that over the course of a series that that would repeat itself. And that honestly, that we'd get it more than... Two to three times in a series. I don't. I don't see it. I think ultimately there is a there is a big big gap in talent here, and the Heat have solid depth, but so do the books generally. And I mean, I did, part of this maybe gets lost as we get to the playoffs and as individuals kind of perform up or down relative to what we're used to. And it becomes a discussion of oh, this guy needs to be out of rotation. This guy needs to be into rotation. You know, the way that teams have viewed the Bucks' depth throughout the year is how we're viewing the Heat's depth now. I think there's an added layer of fear because if the best version of their players shows up, their skill sets are very well suited to make 
things incredibly difficult for the books. But there's a reason, like, that Jay Crowder is Jay Crowder. Yeah. As opposed to being, say, Jimmy Butler. You know, there's there's a reason they've got one of those guys on this team as opposed to five or six. Like, I'm not coming into this series fearing Jay Crowder for a moment. We've seen the books play Jay Crowder on lots of teams over the years, and he's a player who... <laughs> He can make trees, right? He could make a lot of trees and do damage. He could also miss a ton of trees. And more likely than not, he is a player that the Bucks will not full on, you know, with two arms, be like, shoot away, shoot away. But I don't think they're going to be afraid of Jay Crowder shooting. They'll live with some ups no, and downs yeah, if it comes that to that, sure. he's, that he's shooting quite a bit. And the other side of it, too, you can look at him and say, oh, you know, tough, defensive-minded player. He's smart. He's got some size. He's he's the ideal kind of player to have some minutes on Giannis. And he is if you're building a cast. But we've seen Giannis like, just blast through him in the past. Like, just completely tear him apart. And that is the factor here. I think having Jay Crowder and having Andre Iguodala and having first and foremost Bam Adebayo to throw at Giannis is a real positive from the Heat's perspective. I also don't know if that actually slows down Giannis all that much at this point. Like, it may be as good as what any team can put at him, just in terms of you've got enough players, if guys start racking up fouls, or if it's taking a lot out of them, if you need to kind of get other guys some rest. Uh, I just don't know if it can stop him, though. And that's also, for the Heat, that's going to be an interesting thing as it goes on, because it's... It's one thing for like a random Tuesday in March to be like, bam, we want you to lock down Giannis. It's another thing to say, okay, you might be have to do it seven times and the stakes are as high as they can be. And as much as you know his tendencies, he knows yours. Go and do it now. And for the Heat, and this is where the talent difference comes in too, like... Jimmy Butler is a great guy to be able to have guard Chris Middleton. Bam Adebayo is a great guy to be able to have guard Giannis. Mm -hmm. They're going to get hurt on the talent difference between the two teams because they can't have those two guys put all of their energy into guarding Middleton and Giannis. Because if that happens, the Heat aren't going to score 60 points. Yeah, they might score 20 three-pointers. They might have 20 wide-open three-pointers. Duncan Robinson might make all of them. But that's going to be the sum total of their offense. Like, to to really get something going, they have some kind of interesting balancing acts. It's not beyond them to get them right. Really good, smart group of players and one of the very best coaches in the NBA. Like, there's no doubt over that. Um, For as much as books fans, plenty of books fans have their gripes with Bud, I think most would still agree, you know, 9 out of 10 playoff series nine out of ten just games you're gonna go into, you're gonna feel confident Bud is the better coach. That isn't the case here. No. Like I'm the most ardent Bud fan. I'm not gonna say that. Eric Spolstra is I think top three coach in the NBA regardless of who his roster is. To me, personally. I don't know, you might have different rankings. To me there's there's Pop, there's Eric Spolstra and there's Rick Carlisle. And they're the three guys. Yeah. Maybe maybe others can get themselves into that territory as the years go on, but just in terms of being there, done it, proved it with all sorts of different teams, all sorts of different rosters, having to employ different styles, they are the guys. Yeah. And 
that they're is the, something they're the to, constants. to watch. It's, they they things can change, but they still, you know, if we you you know how we talked about the Heat the last couple of years when they're kind of in this kind of middling period. I mean, we were still like, oh, Hassan Whiteside could still bother Giannis. I mean, Hassan Whiteside is Hassan Whiteside, but mm-hmm. it's still like you know he's super tall. He has just long arms and all that stuff. Like it was a problem for Giannis sometimes. Um, and they've obviously changed their core and all, everything played more to what their strengths are uh, as a team. Results have shown this year, but yeah, I suppose definitely. But like that's for me, they're they're a player away from being the books and from being you know true title contender in their own right. Because having Butler and having Bam, you know, that's great. That's you've got something good, and you've got two guys who will buy in and help set your culture. And that's what's happened. And the culture was there before them and will also be there after them. But they need the other guy because if one of them isn't firing or if they're taking on too much defensively, I just don't know. I don't know what happens to them from there. I mean, Duncan Robinson is the the player more than any player in the playoffs who scares me. Yes. I, I understand in saying that that that's completely insane. He's, but it's no, it's knowing what the books are and what he is. Yes. And, you know, second on my list is Matt Thomas, probably. But I know that <laughs> the Raptors aren't going to play Matt He's, Thomas that much. I don't know. Um, they, they make well, it out. you know, maybe against, maybe against the books. Maybe against the books we see him a whole lot more. But... Duncan Robinson has, you know, he has played major minutes. He has shown himself to be comfortable playing major minutes, to be comfortable shooting at incredible volume and doing so with real efficiency. And he is exactly the kind of shooter who will bother the books because he can pull up, he can knock them down, stand still in corners, he can run off screens. He's just a, a complete jump shooter and one of the very best three-point shooters in the NBA. And, you know this is the series or that could be a problem. Now, like I've already seen some people and it's like, are the books going to adjust the three points defense? For, no, for Duncan Robson or the heat. No, they're not. They're not going to adjust it for anyone because they're playing the numbers and they're making a bet. And the bet is okay. He can make as many of them as he wants. If we do the other part, right, it doesn't matter. And guess what? Even in against the heat and what was a really weird season series, they do have, they do have something that they can cling to to back that up, which is the the freak bubble game, where, like, did, how many did Duncan Robinson make in the first half? Was it like six or seven? Something like that. They made twenty one on that on the day. And you know what? The books didn't care. They got their interior defense working, and their point of attack defense working, and all of a sudden they rolled off like a forty point turnaround the second half and won the game. So that is what the books' philosophy is. That's what their defense is. That's what has given them the best defense of the NBA two years running. It's not going to change. And it shouldn't change for him. But when you come up against him, and what makes him scary is it puts greater pressure on getting all of the other elements right. Yeah. And, for example, Eric Bledsoe, as we record this, is questionable for game one. I did not know that. You didn't know that? No. Okay. Eric Bledsoe is questionable with a hamstring injury. Hmm. that would be a problem if you George Hill's a very good defender but it's one of two areas where if you're going to lose anything in terms of your you know your point of attack 
going after their ball handlers and trying to one slow things down um and also just to kind of allow you to get set allow the opponent not to get set into what they want Bledsoe does that incredibly well if Bledsoe misses game one or if he's going to have injury issues throughout the series that's going to be a problem because then you don't have the advantage in that department and your your willingness to give up the three-pointer becomes a bigger issue Likewise, if the Bucks' interior defense wasn't at its best. Now, this was an issue earlier on, but it's to me is one that I think they've really worked out well. One thing that I, I don't think... I didn't really see a whole lot about it, but what I think one of the things the Bucks did as the Magic series went on is they got the players they wanted to take certain shots to take those shots. Like, they did it brilliantly well. I think Evan Fournier was the perfect example of this. Yeah. In terms of... Like, he didn't get a whole lot of looks from Trey. No. And all the Magic would have wanted, all he would have wanted, is some easy jump shots to get going. Mm-hmm. And instead, he was getting these kind of mid-range floaters that were heavily contested with Brooke there. I Brooke, again, I, I saw quite a lot. I'll be interested for your thoughts on this, because I think Brooke is, again, going to be incredibly significant in this series. I saw a lot of tweets from very smart people, not, not books people necessarily, national people who are talking about, like, Brooke getting destroyed defensively throughout that series. And I was like, this is just a fundamental lack of understanding of what the Bucks defense is, which I can't believe we're still at this point. Like, uh, particularly after Eric Name's brilliant piece for the Athletic, where Brooke went through this. Mm-hmm. But I thought Brooke was pretty brilliant at points defensively. And it's not tied to, you know, as much as people might want to go there, oh, how is Brooke Lopez playing defensively? Isn't tied to what is Nikola Vucevic doing? Yeah, it's it's tied more to okay. Well, what was Evan Fournier allowed to do, and what was Terrence Ross allowed to do at times, or Markel Fultz? You know, it's it's other guys on the roster, and I think as this series went on, the books really walled off the paint well, and it took a long time for Vooch to even like attempt some hook shots that I think if he'd taken more of early on, that would have been a better place for the Magic. But the books didn't let him take those shots. They had. The likes of Evan Fournier taking those shots, and they had Evan Fournier or they had Vucevic taking the shots that Evan Fournier wanted. Like that is that is the book's game plan. That series, I think, at times is a really nice snapshot of that. And the question here is whether you can do that again. You know, it's I guess with personnel it changes up, but it's like, okay, well, can you can you take some of those kind of free throw line floaters or mid-range jumpers can you make them more difficult you're not going to take them away because it's part of your defense or can you make them more difficult or challenge them more when it's jimmy butler maybe flip the script so jimmy butler is having to take more three pointers someone like duncan robinson is having to take a step in more often like that's what the bucks defense is about is we're gonna let you have some shots because no defense can stop everything but we want to dictate what shots player x gets to take player y gets to take and that is the thing that i mean as the series goes on is going to be really fascinating to watch it really yeah i mean that's <laughs> that's the challenge of everything like and kind of i mean brooke is going to be huge this series no matter what it, as much as it, as it is defensively i think offensively it's even bigger because there isn't really a who I mean, they're not going to put Bam on him. They're going to put. That's going to be. He's going to be on Giannis, whether 
It's not going to be all 48 minutes. He's going to have Jay Crowder. Yeah, he's he's going to have Jay Crowder, Crowder under the rim. This is in, I remember I, it was after that, again, the Mar- early March loss against the Heat, and there was the quote of Yana saying, like, we have to recognize mismatches, mismatches and get the ball to Brooke. That was after that game. And, again, the Bucks played terrible uh, offensively that game. It was, like, the worst offensive game that they had. And – but Brooke was like one of the kind of bright spots and a, and a pretty bad night for them. And mm-hmm. I think he's going to have, if he's shooting it as well as he has it from three, that we're going to see a lot of him in the post and stuff like that. I think he's, he's certainly going to be, he might be like the swing guy. Of, of, of I was going to say, there's a, there's a case he made that he should be the second option in this series. Possibly. Yeah. Honestly. Like we talked about the importance of Middleton, you know, keep firing. But you mentioned earlier just how good a job Middleton did as the Orlando series went on of just, you know, playing heads up and spotting when, oh, we've got a bigger guy under the rim with a smaller defender on him. How about I throw the ball there? Yep. Like, he's good at that. He can do that. That may be a part of his role. And Brooks' role may just be getting inside and dunking on people and kind of leaning into some of his old school post game and averaging over 20 points per game for the series he can certainly do it like and his i mean there was a shaky game game one was shaky i think if i remember correctly but brooke looked good again continued to look really good throughout the first round overall where you add that to how he's played since the restart and there's every reason to have a lot of trust in brooke right now yes yeah and also just i think overall in his feel and his judgment i think it's good. It's solid. We're not talking about like Nikola Jokic, but I I do think Brooke offers enough as a post player that if you've got those mismatches and you start to work them and their defense really starts to collapse, uh, he can make passes to shooters outside or there will be, you know, opportunities will open up for like simple drop off passes to guys like Giannis or Bledsoe who are like running hard or cutting hard to the rim uh, guys like Pat Connaughton and Dante have been specialists at that over the year. George Hill, also very good at that. I mean, I think that is a path to a lot of easy points. And it's honestly, that's an approach that I'd like the books to see. I'd like to see the books go to right out of the gate, game one. Like, it, it could be something they hold back in as an adjustment. <sighs> It's entirely possible the books play as the books always play, and it doesn't go quite as well, and they lose game one, and we find ourselves in a spot we found ourselves a few times now. This this would be the third time in two years. I don't think they need to do that. I think you can make a slight tweak and go out and try to seize the initiative and make things difficult to begin with, like more than that. He doesn't make adjustments, and you know a lot of the the conversation around Bud. And that one, I, we talked about it last year in the playoffs too. It's kind of a fallacy because he did make adjustments. You know, even the conference finals, he did make adjustments. My bigger criticism of Bud is there's times where he's got a good thing. He knows he's got a good thing and he, he won't rock the boat. So he won't go and say, how do we take, you know, the initiative and really go on the front foot? Yeah. And this case, that would be like feed Brook over and over again in game one. Because if you do that and you have success and you have real success, you could force a conversation going into game two, which is, you know, the Heat being like, do we need to have Bam on Brook? 
do we have to take Bam off Giannis? Do we go with Jay Crowder or Iguodala on Giannis? Which, if the books could force the Heat into that kind of situation, that's just a game changer. Mm-hmm. Like you've got them on the back foot, and you've you've got more options to hurt them than they have to hurt you. Yeah. Where if the books, if the books allow it to play out and they get a bad game, which is possible, saw it happen against the Heat or against the Celtics in Game One last year, and we saw it happen in Game One against the Magic. You're allowing the Heat to set the tone, and I, I don't think the Bucks need to do that because this is a good team. Don't give them that chance to get started and get some momentum and really get their confidence up. Go and take it for yourself because as good as they are, you're better. Uh, the one other thing that I just think is crucial to mention, and it's I remember I wrote about it after that game back in March, mm-hmm. uh, the Bucks got bullied. Yeah. They got absolutely bullied. Physically, they were not up to the task. And the Heat will come at them physically again. Giannis will feel a lot of contact. And that's fine. Uh, we know that's how it is. We're used to it. There's a couple things that need to happen. Bud has to be on that. and He's got to press the officials. It's not something that he does very often. But I think it's something that, you know, game one, I'd be looking at go and set the tone for that and make the point and try to dictate how Giannis gets officiated for the series. I think the other thing, though, feeds into rotation choices. Rolo sat all but the first two games and hardly played game two, if I remember correctly. I might be off, but he certainly, by the end of the first round series, Rolo was out of the rotation and it was clear that Bud had decided this is not a series for him. This is a series for Robin Lopez. This is a series to keep your size inside. I'm not saying Rolo should be playing 15-20 minutes, but I think try to maintain size at all times and have your own players out there who have the physicality and have the edge and don't let the Heat take control of the the physicality stakes on this because they will want to do that and they have the personalities to do that. I mean, if that means that Robin Lopez is getting a few minutes here or there, I do that. If that means, particularly if Dante, if Dante is struggling and he can't bring his own kind of energy and aggression, if that means that you're looking down your bench, you're like, we need another wing. If you're giving five minutes to Sterling Brown, I certainly wouldn't want to give more, but maybe there is something for that. I think it's it's an element of this series that's going to take the books out of their comfort zone that may force Bud into some decisions that aren't necessarily, you know, let's make idealized, you know, what is books basketball basketball calls in shaping up my rotation there will just be a part of having to meet fire with fire against the heat and maybe the books themselves can bring themselves to that spot and be ready and then you know if everyone's there you don't have to worry about it but i i do think rollo in particular considering how the heat are going to guard Giannis, considering how they're going to likely look to kind of split their rotations there could well be a role for him even if that role is and this would possibly be a bigger adjustment for bud that he shares the court with Giannis for significant spells because brook may be a guy then when Giannis sits that he could go and feast on what's out there too i don't know there's part of that you gotta you gotta wait and see how it unfolds and how the heat run with their rotations but I do think one way or another, there's going to be some minutes in this series when you come to your extra big. And I don't think this is the series where you go small too often. 
Like the books could have success with that, but I don't think this can be, oh, you know, Marvin and Yanis, you know, interchangeables four and five. That's our backup option. I don't think this is the series for San Eliasova at all. I think if you're looking for, okay, we've got Brooke, we've got Yanis, we've got Marvin Williams, who is the fourth big in the rotation? I think it, it will need to be Robin Lopez. I, th- I, I agree with that. Even if it's eight minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is. Yeah. It doesn't need to be more than that. I'm not saying he needs to be, but like you could have that it's early. You know, Giannis is normally first out in the first quarter. Even if it's that, when Giannis comes in to start the second quarter, make sure Brooke is out and have Robin in and have Giannis and Robin play three, four minutes. And they do the same, you know, late third quarter, start of the fourth quarter, that you're just talking three or four minute bursts. But keep your size, keep your physicality, and don't let the Heat take control of that particular department. Because they're going to want to make it as ugly as possible. I mean, we know this. That is, and always has been part of what the Heat like to do. But I think particularly with the makeup of this roster, they have a lot of guys who will want to make it a grind. And they'll want to make it as uncomfortable as possible. They'll want to make it, we're the underdogs, you're the favorites, and we're going to make your life hell out here. So... Don't let it be like that, you know? Yeah. I'm not saying you don't want to play completely into their hands on it either. That's, you don't need to play Sterling Brown 25 minutes uh, just so him and Jimmy Butler can, like, bark at each other as they go up and down the court. But I think there are some areas, and one for me would be meet them with size at all times because you've got an advantage there too. Uh, whether it's Bam, whether it's Kelly Olenek, you know... Uh, even I don't really know if Myers Leonard is playing at all really at the moment. Mm, he didn't play a minute uh, in the against the Pacers. Like they're regardless, those three guys are not the Lopez brothers. Yeah, you've got a different profile of players, and maybe with Olenek it's trickier because Olenek will look to stretch the floor. It's certainly not one Bams out there though. You know the books need to look to kind of use the size advantage that they could have. And with Brooke, it's certainly going to be a case. Maybe that could trickle down some other matchups too. Mm -hmm. Any last thoughts on the heat before we wrap this up? I, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be a grind. This, there's no way this is a short series at all. This is going to be a very fly by the seat or pants kind of seat or series that just, yeah. It should be entertaining, but I'm. It's yeah. Well, we'll get into predictions. We'll do it now. What's your prediction? I'll do Bucks and six. I think it's too on the nose. I think it's too. Don't know if you've noticed. Twenty twenty, not one for poetry. You know, it's not. It's not one for you know. It'd be really good if you know. All these years later, the Bucks and the Heat play in the playoffs again. And the books actually go and win in six. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be a good thing? I know we'd love it. Maybe we could get some more sound bites. Maybe I could finally make some changes to our intro. Um, I actually, I think the books are going to win in five. I think they're going to be five really hard fought games. I think the books will have benefited from basically just the the commitment and intensity of the magic because I do think that is the same kind of energy that they're going to face with the Heat, albeit against considerably better players. And I think the books have been trending in the right direction, and 
I think in terms of just, you know, unified purpose, um, their drive, their desire to kick on from here, uh, it's hard to it's hard to understate. I don't like thinking about or even talking about what the events of last week could mean for the Bucks from a basketball perspective, because that is not what it was about. No. But at the same time, I think it would be kind of strange for us to ignore that there is potential for what they did together to spill over into how they perform together on the court. I think it's it's a defining moment in their friendships and it's a defining moment in who they are as a group, as a team. And I think tough games, very tough games. We could be in for five nail biters, but I'm going for, like I did in the last round, which I was right, by the way, Jordan, but you were wrong. Uh, I'm going to go books in five again, but just as different uh, five-game series as you could possibly get from what we just saw. Bonus prediction, Jordan. The books lose game one and do this to us all over yes. again. Oh, no. Come on. Really? Well, I mean, that's worked for them twice now. Uh, it's worked for them better than it has getting out to a than going up Than going up two hours, what you're going to say. <laughs> Dwayne Casey and the Pistons would disagree with you, Jordan. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, that's true. Um, I hope not. I hope they win game one. But we shall see. Uh, game one certainly haven't proven to be the book specialty. All right, that does it for this episode. We've had quite a bit of catching up to do, so appreciate those of you who listened to stuck with us through it. Apologies again for the radio silence over the past two weeks. It wasn't the intention, but sometimes, as I think we're all aware right now, life happens, and uh, that's that's been the case for me, and Jordan has been very kind understanding on that front. So we're going to return to what was our original plan for round one as we move into the conference semifinals, which means... We're going to go for podcasts every second game. Don't hold us to that in terms of, like, if there's a real need to come in with an extra one here or there, we might do that. But to be, you know, on the safe side, you're likely going to hear from us between uh, the aftermath of game two and before game three will be the next time you'll hear from us. So until then... Make sure you check out all of mine, Jordan, and the rest of our teams riding up behind the book pass. We've got tons of stuff there. We've had tons of stuff on the protests in recent days. We've had tons of stuff today on the heat, and that will only continue going forward. So very much a one-stop shop for all your books coverage. Mm-hmm. And most importantly of all, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on SoundCloud, add us on Stitcher, favorite us on TuneIn Radio. That way you can make sure to get each and every episode of winning six throughout the playoffs it is the playoffs so you know i'm saying to you every second game who knows there could be more don't just take my word for it subscribe so that you know whenever an episode of winning six drops as always thanks all of you for listening and supporting us we'll be back to you very soon go books thank you